another episode of In Death with Dion. I am so excited to have another guest here, Victor Lukerson, journalist and author of Built from the Fire. Vic, it's so good to have you. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Dion. I'm excited to be here and be part of this uh, new endeavor with you. So, Vic, I'm going to get right to it. You know, you moved here um, to the Greenwood District, and for the last five years, you've been researching the history of Black Wall Street and all the way up till today to create this manuscript that I really feel like can be used as a blueprint for justice, for reparations, right? Tell me, and for all of those people who are like, I've seen documentaries, I've read books, why is this book something people should read and, and purchase? What's different about Built from the Fire? You know, I think the main thing that's different about it really is the, the people. Um, you know, I think about sort of the most popular depiction of the Tulsa Race Master probably exists in popular culture right now, which is Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Um, there's yeah. a very vivid depiction of the massacre in the opening segment of that show. Um, but when you watch that, the people are literally anonymous. You know what I mean? You don't even see their faces sometimes. These folks are getting shot and murdered um, down the street on Greenwood Avenue. And for me, it was really important to really bring those names, those faces, those spirits to life. And so that's why I felt it was important to move here and embed myself uh, in this community for uh, five years, like you said. And so in Built from the Fire, I actually follow several families who've been in Greenwood for more than 100 years, mm-hmm. um, who came in from the Deep South, um, survived the race massacre, rebuilt their lives, connected with others and part of that rebuilding, and then withstood a lot of other storms as well, you know, redlining, urban renewal, today gentrification. Um, for me, it was just really important to make it the reality grounded in the lived experience of folks. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that really separates um, this narrative from a lot of others. And so for me, it's been really rewarding to travel around the country and get to connect, connect with a lot of those families. You know, when I had my first event here in Tulsa, um, Jim Goodwin, um, sort of the patriarch of the Goodwin family who was at the center of the book, was part mm-hmm. of that event. Um, I had an event in Washington, D.C. where descendants of A.J. Smitherman were there. Um, A.J. Smitherman being a very prominent journalist himself in early Greenwood. Um, I did an event at the Church of Louis Williams Descendants in Dallas. And so for me, it was really important to really sort of put those people's lives in context, not just to mask what happened afterwards. And mm-hmm. so it's really rewarding to be able to follow that through line to the present day and then have the people who were depicted in that through line really respond well to the story that I put together. Wow. So I really want to get into, you know, why this can be a blueprint for justice, what it says about the government institutions that are still around today uh, that, you know, uh, are facing a lawsuit uh, for reparations at this moment. Um, But just to start, can you tell me, like, you know, as journalists, right, we want to tell stories that matter. We want to tell stories from perspectives that maybe aren't always in the spotlight or not getting the coverage they deserve. And from a way that, like, you explained humanizes the story, which is what sets Built from the Fire apart from other stories. You know, it's not just, uh, you know, this is what happened and this is who it happened to, but these are who these people were and are, right? right? Um, What does it feel like to be able to gain the trust, you know, of these communities, of these families to the point where they trust you to go anywhere and tell their story? Yeah, I mean, it's a... Takes time, I think, is the biggest element um, that any journalist um, has to put in, mm-hmm. you know? Um, for me, this was actually a really uh, transformative experience to work on this project for so long. 
Uh, before moving to Tulsa, uh, I was a national reporter for uh, Time Magazine and later for a website called The Ringer. Um, shout out to The Ringer for my sweatshirt. <laughs> Um, but when I did that, when I worked for those companies, um, I would write about communities, but it was always in a very compressed time scale. Mm-hmm. You know, in journalism, we have this concept called parachute journalism, where you might go into a community, uh, parachute in for a few days, something happens, sort of gather whatever information you can and then leave, never come back. Right. And so I've written dozens of stories like that about places all over this country. And um, living in Greenwood was the first time I ever really embedded in a place. And so it was really interesting for me to gain the trust of folks over time and then to even see sort of how they perceived my old, my old role. You know, mm-hmm. we've had a lot of moments over the last few years here in Tulsa where a lot of reporters came into town, um, told a version of the story and then went back to New York or Washington or what have you. And so for me, it's been really interesting to sort of see um, how people here really appreciate you just showing up. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I would say for me, after the book came out, I was almost surprised how warm the local reception was because, you know, I'm a pretty quiet, introverted guy. <laughs> I'm not, I haven't really been out here necessarily like, um, shaking hands and kissing babies. Right. You yeah, know what I thinking mean? from the rooftops. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But after the book came out, it would just be people being like, oh yeah, man, that was Vic. That was a little guy with the notebook. He was there then, <laughs> then, and then, you know, just the fact that I was present. Um, during the George Floyd protest here, mm-hmm. during the mass grave search, that it was clear that I had really invested in trying to tell this story in an in-depth and accurate way. People really respected that. Even the folks who weren't necessarily featured on every page of the book, mm-hmm. I think they respected and appreciated the fact that I was trying to tell an authentic story. And so I think that's really the the, the key for me is that um, authenticity is really important and it takes mm-hmm. time to develop a relationship with somebody to get to that authentic layer. Right. So, okay, you know, for people who are like, all right, they've, they've got me hooked. I'm interested. I'm going to get the book. But what can I expect? Um, walk me through how you structured the book and what kind of revelations are in it. Sure. So from day one, I knew I wanted it to be a very uh, people-focused story. And so I tried to identify... Um, specific families who had had a lot of experience in Greenwood over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And so um, actually on my very um, first time visiting Greenwood before I really committed to doing the book project, um, I wrote an article about all this before I committed to doing the book. And on my very first visit here, I actually got to go inside the Oklahoma Eagle office. You know, if you're on Greenwood Avenue today, um, looking north towards the interstate and you turn to your right, you'll see this old auto garage, Oklahoma Eagle on the front. And um, when I got to go inside there, I got to meet Jim Goodwin, who owns the newspaper. He's also an attorney here in Greenwood. And he really unfurled for me this incredible family story about how his grandfather, J.H. Goodwin, had been a uh, shop owner in rural Mississippi in the early 1900s, living under the boot of Jim Crow. And then had heard about this this almost black utopia, the Eden mm-hmm. of the West in Greenwood, and decided to come out here um, to start a new life. And so... My book actually follows the good ones um, from that world of rural Mississippi all the way on the train tracks to Tulsa, you know, the moment they came here and how they met folks like J.B. Stratford, the hotel owner, A.J. Smitherman, the newspaper owner of Early Greenwood, uh, Lula Williams, the Dreamland Theater owner, and how these folks uh, basically working together built up this space of uh, Black community and solidarity. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was important to really sort of set the stage that way. And then they'd be able to show not only not only what had been destroyed, but what was built before that happened. 
Um, but I should say that, and I think I've noticed a lot of folks who respond to the book have been surprised um, how much is after that, you know? So the first part of part, there's books in three parts. Part mm-hmm. one is about the building of Greenwood and the race massacres. I go into in a lot of depth. Um, but then there's two more parts of the book after that. You know what I mean? Um, the reason it's called Built from the Fire is because I really wanted to focus on what this community was like after 1921. Mm. And so I'm able to follow the Gilman family and others as they literally built from the rubble in the aftermath of the massacre. Um, you get to learn about what Greenwood was like during the Great Depression when black folks were being um, systematically excluded from New, De- New Deal benefits while also building their own kind of New Deal through gambling and bootlegging and this kind of <laughs> stuff. Um, you know, from there, you get to learn about um, what Greenwood was like in the 50s and 60s, um, how there was so much of uh, cultural vibrancy here. Artists from all across the country came to Greenwood to perform. And then I guess another key moment for me to focus on was actually um, the second decline of Greenwood. Um, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, urban renewal and higher construction decimated the community. Yeah. Um, thousands, hundreds of homes and businesses were destroyed um, in that era. Um, through like legal government policies, you know, all of it was done, a lot of it was done through court mandated efforts and eminent domain proceedings. And so, and I should also mention the fact that that was all playing out sort of simultaneously with the civil rights movement. And so it was important for me to be able to layer sort of these two checks are happening at the same time. On one hand, you have the effort by black folks to um, achieve equality in America and be able to enter any spaces they wanted to, mm-hmm. right? And I think we're all relatively familiar with that narrative. You know what I mean? And for example, Martin Luther King came to Greenwood in the 1960s. And so that, I think, epitomizes that, that, that era more than anything else does. However, at the very same time, there was a very slow and sort of deliberate um, dismantling of black spaces that was mm-hmm. happening at the very same time. And part of that was because of uh, government policy. Part of that was because of the desire of uh, many black people to sort of live wherever they wanted to, maybe not always in that black space. Um, and so I really wanted to be able to layer those two narratives on top of each other. And I think when you read it that way, you get a kind of a different perspective on what the civil rights movement era was, what the black experience was during that time period, and maybe a little bit about what we, we may have lost um, as we pursued so aggressively entering the white space while the black space was kind of crumbling all around us in that time. Excuse me. And I feel like the way that you juxtapose that is brilliant um, because it's already a, a still a, a debate, right, about what we should have done differently. You know, was integration, you know, what, what, are, the, what are the negative aspects or the negative results uh, of integration, right? And you, you know, explained it, you know, it's a black history book. I mean, it's, 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 everything that we're looking to understand about ourselves that we're not finding in these traditional spaces in schools and libraries, right? Um, even on, on TV, right? You know, our history starts and stops at the, the most traumatizing aspects of, of our experiences, right? But you go into the triumphs, you go into, you know, people just living their lives. You go into it all, the gambling, you know, the, the music scene, you know, and so you've, you you tell a, a well-rounded story of who these people were and are and why they deserve justice. Yeah, um, yeah. I think really trying to capture Black life, that was really yeah. what I wanted to accomplish with this book. I mean, the whole thing, this whole project started for me back in Atlanta where I used to live. Um, me and one of my high school friends were having a lunch one day and he was talking about he had never seen the film 12 Years a Slave. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's one of those movies you're kind of like supposed to see. It's very prestigious. I mean, it's a great movie. But he was sort of tired of only seeing black folks being brutalized in these Hollywood depictions, right? Because yeah. whenever we're on the silver screen of its history, we're either getting whipped as slaves or sick by dogs in the civil rights movement. And so um, I asked my friend, this was 2017, I asked my friend if he had ever heard of Black Wall Street. He had not heard one thing about it his whole life. And so that really was kind of my initial impetus for this whole project, was really wanting to um, explain for a generation our age about what Black folks had done in the past besides being slaves. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And also for me, I think it was a personal curiosity about like what was what were these black spaces that I didn't get to experience? You know what I mean? Right. Um, me and my friend were two of three black guys in our entire high school graduating class. Uh, I went to the University of Alabama, which is a predominantly white institution after that. And so I was just really, I think I was just sort of naturally curious about like, what was this other version of being a black American that I was did not get to experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, one thing that's kind of amazing is that even though a lot of the Greenwood center of gravity is centered around 1921. Mm-hmm. We have many people here who remember growing up in an all black space um, because they were around, either they were around um, before urban renewal happened or even they just grew up in North Tulsa. You know what right. I mean? And so I think that really being able to capture some of those, some of those stories and narratives is really important because um, that experience is uh, dwindling. Mm-hmm. But also I think it's something that a lot of young people crave. And so I think being able to access that and from those people's narratives kind of gives you the inspiration you need to not necessarily recreate the mechanics of it, but I think certainly the spirit of it can be brought back today. Mm. And, you know, when it comes to the topic of reparations, I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's still kind of a divisive topic even among the black community, right? I mean, right. You, have, you have some people who feel that it is, an, you know, an outright... Um, uh, demand that that we should be advocating for and that we should have immediately. You have other people who feel like, you know, it's never going to happen. We need to just focus on building ourselves up, right? But there's people in Greenwood who work in both lanes all the time, right? We're experiencing a resurgence of Black entrepreneurship, especially in the tech space. Right. Um, here in Tulsa, we've just, the city's just recently been designated a tech hub. You know, um, at the same time that there are efforts uh, to seek uh, restitution um, on the legal side, you know, we have the the ongoing court case um, where the two remaining survivors of the massacre are still plaintiffs uh, fighting for reparations at the state, city, and county level. Um, what are your thoughts about uh, reparations? Um, I mean, based on the book, I, I feel like it's pretty clear that you. You 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 believe that at the very least this specific community is more than deserving of it. Um, what are your thoughts about reparations and how this story could be um, uh, used as maybe like a, t- a test case for other communities? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, so when I was crafting the book, it was very important to for me to not really give my own perspective on that until the very very end. Um, we live in a time, I think, where people get a lot of opinion shoved down their throats all the time. You know, you open, open your phone, people tell you their opinion all day, every day. Mm-hmm. And I want to create some space for people to sit with this story and these people and the things that unfolded here and then kind of arrive at their own conclusions about what justice looks like uh, in Greenwood. Um, in the epilogue, though, I do say that, you know, very directly that um, 
I think reparations are owed in this in this situation. I think there's kind of a lot of different sort of ways to approach it, I guess. Um, certainly the legal uh, avenue, I, I think in the book I walked through several different legal efforts that have been going on since 1921 mm-hmm. to get restitution. Um, it's, a t- it's a tough avenue in Oklahoma in particular, in America generally. Um, I think one of the tragedies of the legal cases is the fact that often the efforts that were done by the initial victims in 1921 are almost held against the current efforts, you know? Mm. Um, you know, because those cases, basically because the various like statutes limitations right. um, sort of limit the ability to continue to try the same cases. Um, those efforts that were done in a racist court system with literal clan members involved in the Tulsa court system are still held as valid, which makes it harder for it to do a more direct case these days. So I think mean, that, that makes the legal efforts um, challenging, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? But then there's lots of other ways to think about reparations. Um, you know, in the book, I walk through Representative Virginia Gilwin's efforts to get scholarships for massacre mm-hmm. des- descendants. Um, there is a scholarship program here in Oklahoma, but it's not as robust as it should be. And she's trying to change that, which is positive. Um, I think that um, this effort to remove the interstate overpass from Greenwood is another form of reparations that could yes. happen. Um, I think that this is something I proposed in the book that I haven't talked about much, but I'm really interested in t- the tourism industry in Tulsa finding a way to be less exploitative of the Greenwood story. That's an element of the legal cases going legal cases going on right now. But I don't see why there can't be an, some kind of effort to take money that's coming into Greenwood Rising or the hotels that are all around Greenwood or all these folks who are coming in. Some of that money could be funneled towards um, funding for survivors and descendants, for entrepreneurs who are trying to accomplish things who are from North Tulsa. Absolutely. There are ways you can take the money that's being generated to profit off of this by the city and local businesses and funnel it towards the people whose story is being told uh, day after day. You know, this this story has put Tulsa on the map in a different way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if Tulsa wanted to be on the map this way, but they are. And we've watched the city um, leverage that, you yeah. know? And so I think it's incumbent on anybody mm-hmm. who is telling this story to find a way to route material material gains to the people whose story is being told. I just think that's um, for any business for any creative i just think that's a part of it especially if you're an outsider so right and see you beat me to it because that's the side of today you know the story today that people outside of tulsa and even people inside tulsa aren't really getting the full picture of the fact that for one black wall street is not black owned um the oklahoma eagle i believe is one of the only uh black owned uh spaces in greenwood right today and these businesses are profiting off of a story that they're not pouring back into financially, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, Greenwood is completely gentrified. Right. Um, there are more programs to bring people from outside of Tulsa in than there are to uplift the people here, you know. And a lot of the efforts are, um, you know, sincere, right? Because everyone wants to to see Tulsa become more diverse in thought and in um, community. Um, but there is still a gap today, right? Yeah. And and so, I mean, I'm with you. I think that these museums, I think that these hotels, I think that if you're especially in that space, you should be giving something financially to those specific descendants and survivors. Yeah. And so my hope is that, you know, as more people read Built from the Fire, maybe a light bulb will start to go off or maybe some people will start to have a change of heart. 
Yeah, you know, I agree with that and hope that will happen. Um, I know some point in the last few years, I um, sort of randomly discovered that uh, if you live in Alaska, um, because you know, get, there's a lot of oil in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And so if you live in Alaska, you get a dividend check every year, just living in Alaska because oil is just a very precious resource that Alaska has. Well, okay. You know? And so in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, this Greenwood story is told one of Tulsa's quote unquote precious resources. They mm-hmm. have monetized it. Um, they have turned it into a brand. They've turned it into a commodity in some sense. And so like, if that's the game that's being played, then there should be a dividend going to the folks whose story is being commodified in that way. Come on now. And so um, I think there's lots of models you can use. Um, But I should also say that I think that approaches like that have to be accompanied by um, an actual reckoning with what happened, an actual acknowledgement with what happened, an actual engagement with um, survivors and descendants. Mm -hmm. These are all just kind of ideas that I have, but I'm not, um, from Greenwood. My family was not affected by the race massacre. And so I think that any sort of decisions about how our person should be shaped, should be led by, um, the impacted parties. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember when Greg Robinson was running for mayor, um, which is featured in the, that mayor was just part of the book. I interviewed him before he, um, before the election, I asked him what he supports reparations. So I asked him what reparations he supported, and he said, well, the first step on that is to have the, ma- the massacre survivors and descendants get together and talk about what they want, mm-hmm. you know? And so I also don't want to get kind of too far ahead of right. um, the people who are actually going to be impacted by that. And so, you know, I think that um, Tulsa's first step is to gather those parties. And, you know, what's kind of a shame is they've been here a lot lately. You know, there's been a lot of massacre survivors and descendants coming in and out of Tulsa the last several years. Um, but they've often been gathered by folks like Justice for Greenwood mm-hmm. um, or Transculture Foundation or Representative Goodwin rather than by um, city leaders right. who sort of hold the hold the mechanisms to make these kinds of um, avenues for justice open. So I think that's a shame. I think that is a crucial, crucial point because for for one, you know, a lot of people don't understand what reparations really entails, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's actual internationally recognized definitions uh, that the United Nations uses for reparating a community, and it involves um, uh, uh, asking those impacted, you know, involving them in the decision-making process of right. what reparations looks like. You know, um, I remember, um, you know, I've been covering Greenwood just since 2021, and I remember that first year, the centennial year, um, uh, there was a broadcast reporter who was reporting about um, a church that had donated like a million dollars to the survivors, mm-hmm. right? Um, a million dollars, that's huge. Yeah. That's huge, right? Period. Um, but they classified it, they described it as reparations, mm-hmm. right? But the thing is, when it comes to reparations, you know, if Jimmy wrongs Timmy and Johnny comes in and gives Timmy a, Timmy, um, a dollar that the other person stole, it's not reparations because Johnny wasn't the person that robbed him, right? right. Yeah. And so for it to actually be considered reparations, the person, the, the perpetrator uh, has to be involved in correcting the harm, right? right? And so that was a gift. Yeah. But it wasn't reparations. Yeah. And, and, and so I feel like that's the missing, a, 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 a large missing piece to what people understand about it. Um, and on the flip side, you have people who are completely opposed to it, who think it's just, um, you know, a free check, mm-hmm. right? But talk about 
why reparations is more than just a check and, and, and the power of what it could do in a positive way for the entire city. Yeah, no, they really um, could be transformative. Um, so during my research for this book about Greenwood, I actually mm -hmm. ended up going to Rosewood, Florida. Uh, Rosewood, Florida was a um, black town in the 1920s that suffered a sort of similar um, racist violence to, to Greenwood. Um, a white mob came and burned down the entire neighborhood and everyone was forced to flee in 1923. Um, and, but un unlike Greenwood's case, the folks in Rosewood actually got reparations. In the 1990s, the Florida State Legislature actually awarded $250,000 to each living survivor of the Rosewood Massacre. There were mm -hmm. nine living people at that time that could be identified. And, you know, that happened a long time ago, but I was curious about it now because I wondered, okay, if you gave folks reparations in 1994, what does that look like in 2020? You right. know? And so I went to Florida to this town called Hillier, which is near Jacksonville, and I met with the grandson of one of the survivors. And he, um, when this woman, Mary Daniels, she was a baby uh, during, the race, during the Rosewood Massacre in 1923. Um, her family had been forced to flee. She had been forced to work in various like low-income jobs for the mm -hmm. rest of her life after that. And she gets this check for $250,000 from the Florida state government in the 1990s. She buys this house mm -hmm. um, in Hilliard, Florida, uh, in the late 90s. And fast forward to, 19, to 2020, her grandson is living in the house with his family. Mm. And so now we've gone from the destruction of wealth in Rosewood 1923 to the creation of wealth, generational wealth, yeah. uh, through reparations um, in the 1990s. And that, that creation was ongoing 20 years later. And so that ended up becoming, actually ended up becoming the leader of that story. I wanted to be able to illustrate that um, this, this, this money is about more than a check. It's about like how people's lives and how their progeny is going to, progeny is going to be shaped. You know right. what I mean? And so I think that's the power that reparations can have. Um, and I also just wanted to sort of piggyback on what you were saying about um, the difference between reparations and charity, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Tulsa missed a really great opportunity to combine those two things. There was so much corporate interest in what was happening here in 2021. And there was, I mean, millions of dollars came into Tulsa from Bank of America, OKC Thunder, HBO, all these folks donated donated money to the cause, so to speak. Yeah. But um, I think it's very unfortunate that a lot of that money, um, instead of being funneled directly towards tangible outcomes, it was funneled towards museums, memorials, and that kind of thing. More, I think it, more institutions. Yeah, exactly. It was it was all went through it, it all went through institutional bureaucracies essentially. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, let's rewind the clock a little bit and say we did all this differently. What if there had been a reparations fund that had been funded initially by as, with the seed by the city of Tulsa and local donors hmm. in the late 2010s. And then uh, corporations were encouraged to donate money too. I bet if it had been framed that way, you would have gotten even more money. You would have gotten everybody in the America would have opened their walls to help out um, Tulsa Race Massacre survivors and descendants. And so I think that actually could have been a way to even get a more, uh, even more, a larger pool of money mm -hmm. for people to share. Uh, but instead, um, I think it was always a little bit like abstract um, how the money was going to benefit people tangibly. Mm. And that's always going to make people a little bit more skeptical about giving their money to some institution as opposed to um, trying to help somebody out. So Right. But you make a great point. And uh, just recently this year for the Black Wall Street Times or uh, in 2023 for the Black Wall Street Times, like towards the end of the year, there was this report that came out that I covered that said exactly that that when it comes to reparations, it takes government and the private sector working together to accomplish the goal, which, I mean, that's, 
that's how we've accomplished major goals from world war manufacturing to you know everything in between you yeah. know and so i i really want to get on this this point of deserving mm. um Tulsa mayor, D.T. Bynum, outgoing mayor, when it came to the topic of cash payments, he went on Vice News and other outlets and said that taxpayers today shouldn't have to pay for something that happened 100 years ago, right? And I want to get into that just for a minute because I find that interesting and a little bit hypocritical Mm -hmm. because, for one, taxpayers today pay anytime there's a police misconduct lawsuit that the city loses, right, right, or settles. That's coming out of taxpayer funds, right? Mm. The mayor also mentioned when he came into office that he wanted to treat the massacre like a crime and there's no statute of limitations on a crime, mm-hmm. right? The state has had a victim's compensation fund for years, right? And so when you talk about the city being able to set up a reparations fund, it wouldn't be any different than funds they set up before for a specific cause or to mend a specific harm. And so I feel like re- what it really comes down to is they just don't think black folks are deserving reparations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, a lot of times it comes down to what you said, but nobody wants to say that part out loud, <laughs> you know? And so we hear a lot about um, practicality, you know? Mm-hmm. How are we going to go through the logistics? How are we going to figure all this out? How are we going to find who deserves it? Um, which is a red herring because in this case, um, the Oklahoma Historical Society identified and Eddie Faygate identified hundreds of race massacre survivors in the 1990s. And that documentation is in Oklahoma City right now. Um, and then the other question is, I think, like you said, is about, um, or claim, I guess, is about, um, like, should taxpayers be responsible? But, like, the the individual, the individual, the city of Tulsa is an entity that's responsible for all of its uh, actions in the past, you know, it persists. The city of Tulsa persists as a government from what it did uh, decades in the past, and so I don't think that the individual um, sort of can sort of dictate um, every single move the city makes in that sense, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the city can be held responsible um, as an ongoing institution for what it did back then. Um, you know, I think that's the thing that part of part of, I guess, the challenge we face is that. You know, there are going to be some politicians who agree with that mindset, some who don't. Right. And so I think that hopefully this question will be um, part of the upcoming election. You know, there are some mayoral candidates in the past, even like Greg Robinson, who would have agreed with that concept and they would have um, probably moved in some kind of steps towards reparations. There may be candidates coming up this August who also believe that. And so I think that um, ultimately it's not actually a taxpayer question or responsibility thing. It's a certain set of politics that Mayor Bynum has and that other mm-hmm. politicians are going to have a different mindset about. Right. Well, Vic, you know, I want to ask you, there's a lot that people can take from the book. Um, and I'm sure that you've learned a lot of things throughout the research to prepare you for the book. But on a human level, um, was there any type of, uh, I don't know, is there anything you took away from the experience of writing it that you didn't expect? To learn, um, I guess a really striking moment for me was actually after the book was published, um, just a few months ago, actually, when um, Mr. Hughes Van Ellis passed away, mm-hmm. um, or Uncle Red, as a lot of folks call him. That was the first time I felt 
even maybe a little bit of an echo of what it must feel like to have your history slowly fading when no one's accountable, no one's been held accountable for it, you know? So I don't know. I just felt, I just felt his passing in a really visceral way mm-hmm. as somebody who's been living here for a long time now and really embedded myself here. And I really just kind of felt that sense of, um, I don't know, almost like shame for this city, you know, that they had not done, done right by this man, um, nor the other living survivors, nor any of the descendants. And that, you know, that I think like him passing away with that case still lingering, with the refusal of acknowledgement, tangible acknowledgement by the city mm-hmm. of Tulsa, I just kind of felt that 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 wrong, you know, on a more of a gut level. Mm-hmm. It had been kind of intellectualized for me before that. And so I think now it's something that I didn't necessarily expect to feel a different set of emotions. Because obviously I've been here observing everything that's been going on for years. Yeah. But I think it just, um, it felt different. It hit me differently, I think. And it felt, hit me in a way that I kind of felt, maybe I felt again, like a little bit of a echo or sliver of what mm-hmm. the actual massacre survivors and descendants must feel every time it's, this uh, history is not acknowledged. Every time reparations is uh, put down, all these kind of um, issues. And so I think that was, um, on one hand, maybe one of the more challenging things I've sort of absorbed in all of this. Um, But on the other hand, I think on the more positive side of it, I do think that I come to appreciate Greenwood less as a like business success story and more as a story about community love. You know, I think when I entered this project, I almost, I, I used to be a business reporter actually for Time Magazine. And so I almost kind of wanted to figure out like, what was like the secret lesson, mm-hmm. right? What is the secret lesson that J.B. Stafford had that we can just apply today and then we'll get Greenwood, you know? Right. And I realized that, you know, it's not that simple, but also that like the the beauty of, of, of this place was much more about the relationships between people, about people having their backs um, at church, at the movies, at the bars, um, at the numbers, at the numbers house. <laughs> and then those bonds actually being what sort of were able to withstand all the crises, you know? And so it really kind of helped me to kind of tell you my perspective on how you actually build community and political strength. I think it actually has some, a lot to do with things outside of politics. It has to do with supporting each other um, on an everyday basis so that when a crisis hits, you actually are willing to have your neighbors back. I don't think I really understood that. Um, at least for me, maybe you feel this way too, but I think a lot of people our age live very atomized, isolated lives. You know, you're on your phone, you're on Twitter, you're on whatever, and it's really much harder to actually build a human connection with somebody else. But Greenwood had that in spades, and I think that's kind of the the spirit that we have to return to here and really in whatever community you're in um, to affect the kind of change we want to see. I mean, that's that's it. You know, one thing that I've learned, um, because like for me, it's sometimes it's hard to like cover these stories knowing that some people may never see justice in their lifetime, right? And and what is the impact ha- um, uh, what is the impact I'm having as a journalist if I'm doing all this work to cover these stories and there's no restitution for it? And what I've come to realize is we may not see what we want to see you know, in this generation, um, when it comes to um, justice for survivors and, and descendants um, of the Tulsa Race Massacre or, or other, you know, societal inequities and, and, and um, uh, destructive events. Um, but we're leaving something behind for the next generation. I mean, for sure. 
we may not be able to change everyone's hearts and minds when it comes to um, <laughs> the the elephant that's been in the room since 1619, right? But someone in the next generation might read your book and realize this is really how it was back then. I'm going to make sure it's never like that. And, you know, we may never even see what the ripple in the pond leads to, right? right. But you could be creating a wave and not know it, you know? And so regardless of what happens on the legal side, you know, the families will always know what you've done. Um, people who read the book will always know. And that's a way to carry on Hughes Van Ellis's life and what he stood for and all the other uh, members of Greenwood uh, in this generation and those to come. So, yeah. And I think that, you know, that it's really not about what I did. It's about what other, it's not about what I did. It's more about what other people were willing to write down earlier. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? It's about the fact that AJ Smitherman's Tulsa Star was documenting things week to week. And then that the Oklahoma Eagle or the Goodwin family picked up that mantle later. You yeah. know, it's about that Mary Jones Parish was willing to literally stand there on Greenwood Avenue while it was burning and observe what was happening, write it down. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's about even the fact that during urban renewal, these folks were going to the city planning meeting and saying, we don't like this. You know, and, and then the fact they the fact that they even though they could not stop what happened in Greenwood at that time, the fact that they were speaking out about it today lets us know how unjust it was. Yeah. And so I think that I really see what I did more is just like documenting what other folks have already done before me. Mm -hmm. And I've always, especially as a journalist, drawn a lot of power from the idea that um, we can honor the past by giving it that greater microphone, you know? And so I'm just really, I guess, grateful for the fact that I was able to um, put so many of these other stories together to kind of create something that will hopefully be able to last for a long time. Man, it's going to, man, I'm <laughs> telling you. And if you haven't, y'all need to go and get this book ASAP. Vic, where can they get this book? Okay, we're at uh, Fulton Street uh, here in Tulsa, also at Magic City Books. Um, if you have to go online, also on Amazon, but I encourage you to buy from an independent bookstore. See, this right here and, you know, everything you've you've done as far as Elevating, like you said, the stories and the documentations from previous generations just shows the importance of Black journalists and the impact and the need for us in this industry. Victor Lucasen, journalist and author of Built from the Fire, I'm so grateful to have you on. Uh, thanks, Dion. This was great. I appreciate it. All right.